0: This is writer and game designer,
1: Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer, Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live from Dragon Meat at Kensington Town Hall in London. With special guest, Rob Hainso. Depending on what you ask us, stuff we might talk about in this episode include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. How to write good. History. Movies. Occultism. And of course, food.
2: Slabtown Games is proud to announce the Kickstarter campaign for their new tablet-based tabletop role-playing game, Storyscape.
1: Storyscape introduces an exciting new breed of role-playing game system, featuring an innovative system of game mechanics designed by none other than fledgling newcomer Robin D. Laws.
2: Storyscape takes the scout work out of gaming by putting the charts, math, and number crunching under the hood, letting you spend more time gaming and less time interacting
1: with the rules. It's designed to be universal and easy to expand and will allow you to play in almost any genre you care to name.
2: Starting with the fantasy build, which of course is the most in-demand build for any role-playing project, Game Masters will be able to fine-tune settings and difficulty levels, so whether you prefer heroic high fantasy or gritty dangerous noir, StoryScape can make it happen.
1: StoryScape is chock-full of easy-to-use, lightning-fast features and tools for Game Master and players alike. From virtual miniature creation, to the fog of war, to automatic journals, all of it inside your tablet. The
2: built-in StoryScape Marketplace will give you access to the best adventure settings and campaigns created by Slabtown Games and by other users worldwide, and will also let you put your own creations up for
1: sale. The StoryScape Kickstarter is your best chance to get your hands on exclusive content and beta access for your gaming group. Head on over to www.slabtowngames.com and check it out.
0: So uh, first, what I thought we would do is, before we move on to the party tricks, we would each talk about our cool new things that are freshly out and also the things that we have in the pipeline. And in order to recognize the singular awesomeness of our singular guest, uh, Rob, we'll put you on the spot first. Uh, What is the cool new thing you want to talk about and what are the cool upcoming things
3: that you have in the pipeline? Right before this convention, I discovered that I actually had a game published on November 6th. Yes, uh, it's called uh, Night Eternal. It's out from Cryptozoic. Um, it's a card game. Um, how many people here, out of curiosity, ever watched the True Blood uh, HBO series about vampires? Okay. So amusingly enough, this is a game based in the world of True Blood and it has absolutely nothing to do with sex or uh, the American South or uh, romantic quadrangles.
0: Or oddly enough, vampires. Oh, vampires? (laughs)
3: Lots of them. Uh, In fact, uh, it's from the medieval... uh, actually, it's sort of set in Europe. Um, It's the (laughs) medieval... I know, imagine Way to reach. (laughs) Yeah! Medieval Europe, uh, vampire politics, power (laughs) struggles. um, If you ever played a game I designed a few years ago called Free Dragon Anti, this is sort of an upgunning of the concept to really include abilities for bluffing and um, multiple pools of blood that the vampires are fighting over. And I have to admit, it's a much nastier game than Free Dragon Anti because it's supposed to be played by vampires. So whenever I had the chance and I had to choose between, is this a fun way to just help friends have fun together, or is this a way for somebody to really screw the other player? I always opted for the second one. And the upcoming thing is uh, probably the 13th Age Bestiary um, is a project that Ken and I both worked on. Ken did initial monster selection and uh, wrangling of freelancers, and uh, I ended up doing a a, a lot of design and development on it, and uh, Ken did the Tarask, the Mightiest Creature in the world, Uh, and uh, so um, it's a pretty fun book, and uh, Pellegrin Press sells it online at the moment as a pre-order, and uh, it'll be coming out to games. pre-order
1: contains all the text. You can start playing the monsters today. This is
3: correct, Um, and the game will be out in uh, Game Store sometime early next year.
0: I'm very excited that uh, Hillfolk and its companion volume Blood on the Snow are now moving from Kickstarter and pre-order fulfillment to regular human availability. These are the games based on my new drama system rule set, which are all about dramatic interaction. Uh, Also uh, here at the show are advanced copies of Schemers, the anthology that I've edited for Stoneskin Press. That's the fiction arm of Pelgrane Press. And uh, these are stories of uh, betrayal and uh, plotting and scheming and uh, sometimes even revenge. Uh, written uh, by writers from across the genre spectrum, uh, including uh, Tobias Backell, uh Ekaterina Sidia, and Catherine Gutenbrower, so check that out. In the pipeline for me, I just finished the Guy in Reach uh, role-playing game is in Layout now. That is the adaptation of Jack Vance's classic science fiction Novels to uh, role playing it 's gumshoe with uh, hints of the dying earth role playing game thrown in there for appropriate vancyan measure. Dreamhounds of Paris is the uh, one of the projects that was begun at a dragon meat panel huh. a couple of years ago. Uh, Simon was asked if we would ever do a dreamland supplement for Trail of Cthulhu, and uh, he rolled his eyes in that Simon way of his. Uh, By the way, we're not making fun of Simon at all.
3: Simon, uh, are you here?
0: Here at the uh, podcast. Uh, Apparently, we're supposed to be making fun of Rob instead of Simon. So Simon rolled his (laughs) eyes uh, as if uh, we would never do such a thing, and I explained that, of course, I had the perfect concept for a Dreamlands Trail book which was to have the surrealists of the 1930s Paris discover that they can manipulate the Dreamlands. So this is the big mammoth campaign book where you play René Magritte, uh, Salvador Dali, Kiki de Montparnasse, as you discover your ability to reshape the dreamlands. And that, uh, Ken has a brilliant chapter in that uh, covering Occult Paris, and uh, Steve Dempsey is handling the Paris geography uh, part of that as well. Recently finished turning in the core game mechanics for uh, StoryScape, which is going to be a tablet-based role-playing game where the uh, tablet app does the job of the rulebook for you and also does all of the resolution that you need it to do. That's for a company called Slabtown Games. They'll be launching a Kickstarter uh, to turn that design document into a playable demo. Oh, and I just started work on the uh, something I've been asked about for years, and my answer until now has always been, well, the schedules have to align. Well, schedules have aligned. And so I'm now working on Feng Shui 2 for Atlas Games.
3: Yeah. Woo! I just got to tell the Shadowfist players that. They didn't know. They were, they were playing you know, Shadowfist without in it. And I was like, yeah, Robin's working on Feng Shui 2. they like, what? So I, I, I expect some trickle-down for them someday.
1: Uh, and Ken. Uh, my most recent thing that is at the Pelgrane stand is double tap which is the expansion book for Night's nice black agents my gumshoe role-playing game of spies versus vampires uh, I have also got at the Osprey booth my Nazi occult book the first of the Osprey dark series if you want uh, not occult Nazis in your game and pretty much who doesn't uh, this is the one-stop shop for all the crazy in beautiful Osprey lavishly illustrated style my uh, Cambodian-inspired Warzone toxic quest uh, sandbox. Uh, Keylong is available from Lamentations of the Flame Princess over in James Raggy's booth. Uh, he is doing his pay-what-you-want policy, which I I don't understand, but if he's willing to do it, I think you should all rush in and take advantage of that. I think a better system would be pay-what-Ken-wants. Yeah, but pay-what-Ken-wants would also be good. I'll take that. he um, just come by. Oh, I gave Ken a tenner. Anyway, um... So yes, Keelong, if you're interested in sort of old-school Renaissance, except not in the Renaissance in Southeast Asia, where archmages are fighting a war you don't understand and poisoning the land around you, that is uh, that's sort of the, the high concept of Keelong, and that's available there. And I am currently cranking on the Dracula Dossier, which will be our Armitage Files for Knights Black Agents, in which you find the original version of Bram Stoker's book before... The Secret Service redacted it to remove sources and methods, thus uh, removing the evidence of them attempting to recruit Dracula as an asset in 1893. That sounds like it was a very good idea that was undoubtedly successful. Absolutely. It worked so well that they've tried it three more times. In uh, 1940, uh, to attempt to stop Hitler from taking Romania, and look how well that worked. In the 70s, to find Dracula's stay-behind mole in MI6, which turns out to... a series of terrible ideas, and of course, now Dracula hates Muslims. (laughs) This should work great. So uh, your goal is to uh, do what the British government cannot do and put Dracula away forever. And that is uh, going to be coming out next year. Uh, I am finishing sort of the broad architecture of it, and then I will make Gareth Hanrahan do all the hard part and take all the credit. So that is how the Dracula dossier is going to unfold. And I think coming fairly soon, the good people at Phoenix magazine in sweden will be releasing an english language best of phoenix anthology that will include some of my columns for phoenix one hopes so if you're interested in that you should keep an eye out and an ear out and we'll have more about that on the podcast as it emerges if you're in chicago uh between december 13th and january 26th you can come see the play shadow over Innsmouth, of which i'm the dramaturg and my extension to the legitimate stage
0: So for our live uh, editions of the podcast, we uh, rely on questions from you, the audience, and we intersperse those questions with a few party tricks. And uh, the first party trick is a classic party trick also born here at uh, Dragon Meat. Uh, these are the Nerd Trope cards uh, created for us by listener Caleb Tate. And uh, what Ken does is he takes one card from the Nerd deck, one card from the Trope deck, and free associates thereon. Ken, could
1: you draw your nerd card, please? The nerd card is, oh, historically apropos, JFK. JFK. Nerd trope card, JFK. JFK. Trope, herbalism. (laughs) I mean, given that John F. Kennedy was on every drug known to man for a series of ailments, some of which are caused by the other drugs, I think that simply saying that JFK is also on a series of psychoactive entheogens prescribed by a secret cabal of druids within the Joint Chiefs of Staff is probably a little too obvious.
0: Yeah, that that seems trite to me. Yeah, so should
1: we do another trope card and try and Uh, move beyond our druids? Yeah, do another trope card. Another trope card. JFK, alchemy. It seems that people really want... (laughs) (laughs) What?! To talk about stuff in JFK. Do the airport. In this case, obviously, the, um, uh, the airport? The airport. Oh, the airport JFK yeah. and alchemy. Oh, an interesting yeah. way of screwing with me. Thanks there. <laughs> remind, remind me to help with your party trick. <laughs> Everyone knows about the Denver International Airport as a temple to uh, reptoid control of America. That's pretty much been well established. What people don't understand is the JFK airport in New York acts as a counter, uh, a, a counter battery, not so much an anti uh, Denver airport, but the uh, anode to its cathode, if you will, the other end. And that airport was laid out uh, in the 1960s during the great era of attempting to harness uh, magic and alchemy. Uh, In the same sort of spirit that we were attempting to harness, say, intervention in Southeast Asian wars or um, uh, curing cancer, uh, providing space travel, all the other great ideas that the government had in the 60s, among those was to alchemically construct an airport in New York City to keep it eternally safe, secure, prosperous, and clean. And you can tell how well that worked out. (laughs) So what is going on with JFK Airport now is that the alchemical resonance of that airport is bleeding into the rest of the city. And it began, obviously, fairly early on with uh, uh, the attempt by Robert Moses to create a series of athenors using the expressways to contain the magical energies of Manhattan, uh, Manhattan, obviously, primarily Kabbalah with the math and the numbers and the fate and the chance. Obviously, the astrology, that's going to be coming out of Queens because of the uh, numbers of Bohemians and uh, other Eastern European Immigrants in the Queens neighborhood, so they would have brought their their native understandings of um, uh, astrological science. Brooklyn has been uh, traditionally uh, your uh, your magia, the, the, the fundamental power of words, um, from the previous uh, the, the, uh, the the Dutch uh, brokolan, which means uh, broken space. So the the, the concept that, that Brooklyn is actually where the, um, uh, uh, the the sort of the places of power, the nodes, the nexi are, Manhattan Island. If you just look at it, that is the crucible itself, with the East River and the Hudson holding it in. Moses tries to build a man-made crucible that's going to unite all of the uh, Athenors, and then simultaneously the federal government, uh, and remember, Robert Moses and the federal government did not get along. Moses was city and state. FDR and Robert Moses hated each other. So the JFK Alchemical Airport is a, a counter-Moses. So there are two counter-Athenors at work in New York City, uh, with the result that they both leak. And uh, if, you, if you've flown through JFK, you uh, recognize that uh, the fundamental blending of the white and the red, it's iffy at best. The sorceress elixir, the, the, the red lion, uh, comes and goes uh, back and forth. The sort of the disintegration of the city in the 70s was countered by uh, sort of ad hoc uh, magic at um, uh, CBGBs and uh, other things. The attempt by uh, later administrations to build up the sort of the... the Bourgeois insulator that is Long Island, uh, just building it out as a baffle to prevent uh, the whole thing from blowing the eastern seaboard sky high. That has worked so far. But now in the 20 in the 21st century, once again uh, the, uh, the the architecture has shifted, and the nature of uh, Brooklyn is is rising. The nature of Manhattan is stratifying. Basically, you've got the Calson and the um, uh, on the opposite of the calcium, the, the vitriol or whatever it is that's up in the uh, up in the top, and uh, you have a uh, you you don't have a blending anymore. the 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 whole thing is broken down. Uh, so the thing for your characters to do is to understand the sacred architecture of JFK, the sacred architecture of the Robert Moses highways, and attempt by individual action to provide safety valves and then tap into the power that is created by that. And uh, this is Ken when jet lagged. Yes. <laughs> and when helped by Rob. Yes.
0: special guest party trick Rob Hainso uh, in addition to being a a brilliant game designer is also a brilliant raconteur and he has a vast store of anecdotes at his beck and call and so uh, the trick here is to name a theme it has to be a very general theme not like a you can't say bananas or uh, refrigerators It has to be uh, something like the theme that I'm about to give him I'm going to give him a theme and he's going to search his store of anecdotes for a story that matches that theme. And Rob, your theme is danger.
3: Is this one of those situations where I should just go with the first thing that comes to mind? Yes. Yes. Okay.
1: That's what Ken did.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, technically, Ken wound up going with the first thing that came to Rob's mind.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, Safe to use a story I blogged about once a day? Do it. Oh, okay, good. All right. Uh, once upon a time, I uh, visited my friends in Baja. Jorge and Lynn de la Torre. Um, they have a ranch. We all go down during the World Cup to watch the World Cup since it's the best place to watch. Mexico's still in it at the beginning. Everybody's excited. Then you get to, the, the real teams win and you get to watch. So um, we also play soccer on the ranch. They've got a, like a homemade chicken wire Field, You know, goals in a field, and we all play in the middle of the... Everybody basically takes a siesta, watches the game, siesta, soccer, into the evening, and it works out. One year, they're going to drive us to the baths, because there's a bath dedicated to the Virgin Mary. And uh, they've done this drive hundreds of times. Jorge, of course, has been living in America, and has not really... Yeah, hasn't been around Mexico that much lately, but, you know, he knows the way. It's all cool. So as we're we're coming over the crest, and there's this... To get to the baths, you drive across the dry, flat, sand lake. It starts raining, and this is a little weird, and Jorge says, oh, it rains here once a year, if that. Sometimes it doesn't rain for an entire year, and he's like, well, that's strange. It isn't raining much, but, oh, those are definitely raindrops. As we hit the lake, all the U.S. car companies that are there filming commercials in the Sun and the perfectly flat lake you know those places where you see cars driving forever hey it's that lake they're all leaving you know the giant conveyor belts of cars on top of their and it, you that turns out to be a bad sign so anyway we drive into the drive into the lake and about 20 minutes in we're stuck we got one little car with the men, one van with uh, the women, which is my wife, Lisa, Linda La Torre, and the two little girls, and uh, all the picnic supplies. Uh, so we're stuck. Dig the car out, drive a little farther, stuck. Drive a little farther, stuck. This isn't going to work. So at that stage, I don't know, we don't turn around precisely. Oh, no. No, we take the shortcut. So the shortcut leads us... Oh, hey, we're stuck! Oh, hey, we're stuck! Motherfucker, we're stuck! Don't cuss around the children. Good thing Jorge and I are in the same car together. I am wearing, this is important later on, what my wife calls my Estonian drug runner shirt, or actually Russian drug runner shirt, and Jorge has... Sorry, wait. Describe the shirt for us. It's kind of got this... Green paisley, no, plaid thing, the plaid paisley thing going on, but it's really psychedelic and it's kind of silky. Well,
0: <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I was picturing when you <laughs> yeah, said Estonian <laughs> drug runner. Yeah,
3: good times. Jorge, meanwhile, has. How are you? I have. Ten Gant. <laughs> Jorge has ponytail down to his back, very, very beautiful, half Danish, half Mexican man, and uh, does not. He also looks like a drug runner. So, at some point, we're stuck. And we're on one road, and hey, everybody! For the first time ever, I should I should mention that I have tried to go up to a... all the houses seem to be abandoned. Jorge's like that's weird. There were an awful lot of people living here the last time I was here. Meanwhile, the barbed wire is sort of swinging in the wind, and the... you go up to a house. Hello, hello, is there anybody? Hello, there hasn't been anybody here for a long time. Okay, I'm starting to think. We're in sort of the wrong place, but let's not panic or anything. We see a car. The car is in the distance. It's not a car, it's a truck. It's a truck with one headlight. It has another car coming very fast behind it. This is good news. And yet, strangely, Jorge doesn't seem to be waving to the car with quite the enthusiasm that, you know, say Lynn is. Because Jorge's figured out what's probably going on. And the the car, the truck, Uh, That's weird. They're not stopping to help us. They're on another road. They're just going by really, really fast. And they're just (laughs) top speed. I don't know. I guess that they just, you know, people all here, blonde people waving at them doesn't mean anything. (laughs) It's too bad. So uh, we finish our snack of like fruit roll-ups or whatever and dig the car out because the van keeps getting really stuck and we're starting to driving, And at this stage I start cussing Jorge out a little bit because I'm like, Jorge, you've said four or five times, this is the way I know where I'm going. Don't say that again. Just go ahead and admit we're fucking lost and I'm not going to get incredibly pissed at you.
0: And <laughs> um, This will be the first episode of Ken and Robin with an explicit tag on iTunes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Good. Excellent. I'm glad to be a first. All right. So, um, And he does it again, because we come to this place, and he says, oh, this is the way, finally, look, it's actually a road, you can tell it's a road, and I say, that's not a road, that's an orchard, and Jorge, Jorge, he says, no, no, it's a road, it's totally, it's a road, the road goes through, it goes to the, goes to the bath, it's not a problem, I've been this way, I know this way, we drive in, we hit a barbed wire fence over here. That's strange to hit on a road. We turn. <laughs> we turn to go a little while. Now we hit another goddamn barbed wire fence. OK, now this stage, both cars get stuck, right? And at that point, I'm like, Jorge, it's an orchard. And he's like, I know. I'm sorry. And it's we've driven a long way in this orchard. Whoever owned this orchard, they were rich, OK? Here's a long way. And right at that moment, as we're digging the cars out, we look up at the hills because there's a long line of cars snaking down the hills it's awesome headlights everywhere and now it's dark okay so it's like 13 i count them 13 14 cars this is very exciting jorge says you know i think he's trying to figure out i just don't get it he says it must be oh that's it those there's a film there's a town those are the hills and there's a town over there and they must have just had a soccer game the crazy things you think when you're trying to explain the world to yourself they they must have just had a soccer game and the soccer game got out and now everybody's driving home and of course you're thinking they're all really tight together but I guess that could be look they're coming our way this is awesome they're coming our way this is great And and our headlights are shining down the long 500, 600, 700 yards and you just see these headlights go by it's so far away you can't even see what cars they are and they all just go by. And they're like, and we're just like, well, okay. So we'll dig the cars out again. And the, the, they just, the headlights disappear. We're like, and I was like, should we follow them? And he's like, no, no, we saw the way they came. We should go back and try to retrace their steps into the hills or something. Okay. So we finally, we dig. it takes a long time to dig the car out. Jorge's apologizing. Rob, I'm sorry about the orchard. You know, <laughs> this is bad. We'll get out of this.
0: Everybody's entitled to one orchard. He's a yeah. really, he's a good guy. Who, who hasn't made
1: that mistake? And Road, orchard. They're so, practically the same word in Spanish.
3: Yet. <laughs> <laughs> so we we're driving back through the incredibly long orchard. And all of a sudden, uh, Jorge and I are in the lead. Women in the back. And, hey, there's a fire. There's a light. There's a fire down there. You're right, there is. Somebody set a fire. And we're both still somehow on the mindset that that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> we, car stops us, across the cross road because we're looking, hey, look, there's a fire. And the next thing I see is an M16 girl right here. And.
0: Uh, for the listeners, right here means uh, two centimeters from your nose.
3: Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Through the open window of the car, one M16, two M16, three people in uh, camouflage outfits, military putting their boots on the car, M16s through the windshield, M16s in through sight, guns surrounding the van behind us. Yes, we have driven into an ambush. The first words, of course, Jorge, Jorge, Jorge says, let me do the talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that is how Rob died.
3: <laughs>
1: no, but yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right.
3: Yeah. I, I guess I could have, in some alternate work universe, I said, what are you talking about? No, I'll do the talking, and that's how I died. Yeah. So uh, in Spanish, of course, they say, get out of the car. And Jorge says, no, 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 that's not necessary. You know, we get out of the car. And Remember, we got the guns, and it's like, no, you see, we're just lost, we're just lost. And the situation is this. We have driven into, well, we don't even know yet. He says all these things about we're lost, we're looking for the baths. Do you know where the baths are? You know, the guys meanwhile are walking around the back car and there's like there's coolers in there and lawn chairs, and there's two little girls who are like seven and eight years old, and you know, Jorge's blonde wife and my blonde wife. And this is not the standard way you carry drugs through coyote country, which is where we are, the biggest drug Hey, I'm not cussing anymore. The biggest drug crossing into America in Baja, which has changed a little bit since the last time Jorge was there. So eventually they decide not to get us a car yet, but they say, Jorge says, can you get your commanding officer? And I speak enough Spanish to understand everything that's being said, but can you get your commander? And they're like, he just went to bed. <laughs> you know, that's not good. Like, can you get him? Can you get him, please? Can we talk to your officer? Can we talk to the person in charge? Because I think he's starts saying that. Like, stop saying officer, just the man in charge, you know, whoever that is, get him. Because these guys, they're not really regulation. It's like you expect a military unit, they have uniforms. These guys don't really have uniforms, they just have guns. <laughs> um, so the commander comes out, he's actually pulling his pants up and putting his belt on. You know, that's what you want. And.
1: Well, better than the other way. Yeah, exactly. Thank you.
3: <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> Oh, well done. Well done. Well played. So uh, it, it, he claims, he, he listens to us, and he gets that look when, when you're turning in your paper, uh, you see it in college you're turning in your paper three weeks late you forgot there was a deadline you see it when the boss is aware that you you know oh god whatever he says can he's disappointed at a sort of a level that he's it's hard to believe that anybody is so stupid and he he he's like he says like what are you doing you know it's like do you know where you are? And it's like, we're just looking for the bats. And Jorge's making it very clear. My entire family is out looking for us. I'm sure they're waiting for us. You know, my whole family. And I think that might have been the critical critical part. Other people are looking for us. We are going to be missed. (laughs) And uh, he... He, ben- he said, This is an experimental, experimental unit of the Mexican Army dedicated
1: to fighting the drug <laughs> war. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah what that's what we are. We're, an, right. experimental unit. <laughs> We're an experimental unit. It's, it's the performance art unit. <laughs> yeah. performance
3: art unit.
1: That's what you want a man who's taking his pants off to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> We're an experimental unit of the Mexican Army. <laughs> And who say, "Oh, good! Yeah. <laughs> they <That's> a <laughs> good army." That's
0: no, right. let, good. let me
3: tell you, so far the experiment is working. That's <laughs> right. Yes. You guys are really effective. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's that? The Theluhujinji. Thelu Jinji. This is a dangerous place. A dangerous place. I don't know. And somehow they just kind of let us go. It's somehow they just kind of let us go. I don't know, man. I don't know. And uh, they let us go. And he told us where the road was, and told us. He basically said that it's the first time in my life you got to hear that thing. It's like, he essentially said, "If he's just like, if we see you again, and then nothing. (laughs) 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 And it's like, okay, sir, (laughs) we're out of
1: here. That's what what they teach you in the experimental (laughs) Mexican (laughs) military academy. So we
3: drive away, you know, there's a little bit of shock, and uh, we drive, we're taking the directions back to the highway, We go about 10 minutes on the directions, and Jorge says, hey, 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 there's the turn! There's the turn! Jorge's driving. He cranks the wheel. We're driving down the highway. I'm like, Christ, we can't believe it, you know. We're not going to the highway, I'm like, No, we're going to the paths. We're going to the paths." and we were right there. We drove another 15 minutes, and then we encountered the giant locked fence, the attack dogs that were guarding the giant locked fence, and we managed to, you know, That was really not that big a problem. It's a good night when the the nasty attack dogs that you're too scared to get out of the car and actually try to attack you as you're trying to get to the bass are the good, easy part. Yes. uh...
0: So when I gave Rob the theme of danger, I was expecting the anecdote of him and a guy with a gun on a bus. So, time (laughs) for questions. That's true. It's time for you to ask us whatever questions you want to ask, whatever uh, questions uh, phrased as statements and theses will be uh, mocked and rejected. Uh, So, what do you want to ask Ken and Robin and Rob? In the red shirt, or sorry, black shirt with the red thing on it. You, sir. (laughs) Oh, and we should try and restate the questions, which
1: in the last live episode I promised we would do, and then Mike, we promptly didn't. Uh, The question is about the Fate Core adaptation of Day After Ragnarok, which uh, was a... Stretch goal for the uh, Fate Core Kickstarter. Uh, what I did with that was I hired uh, Leonard Balsara, the co inventor of Fate, to do my translation. And so, therefore, I basically began with the best possible Fate translation of Day After Ragnarok. The PDF came out to Kickstarter backers. The uh, Fate Core Day After Ragnarok will go to print. It, it went to print, I think, as I was taking off to come here. So the um, uh, it, it should be available, you know, modulo Christmas in January. You should be able to buy Daft Ragnarok Fate Core in print. The big differences between Savage Worlds and Fate Core are the same, I think, as with a lot of systems that privilege gear and equipment in any way. One of the tricky things about Fate is that if it isn't a fundamental part of your character, it's kind of irrelevant. So. If you have the aspect God of Guns, it doesn't matter if you have a 22 holdout pistol or a Dragunov sniper rifle. You're the God of Guns, and so you're going to be have roughly the same effect on the story. And it's up to the GM to say, well, that's possible, that's not possible. And what Lenny has done is he has created a sort of a sub aspecty type system to make gear more interesting in fate. And so, I think that if you're looking at playing a Fate game that has a more equipment or gear oriented uh, concept, you might want to take a look at Fate Core Day After Ragnarok. Another thing that we did is we have a fairly good um, system for doing uh, swarms of uh, creatures. Uh, We have a number of fairly innovative uh, stunts for your animals. I think this is the first Fate bestiary ever. Uh, of any kind. Uh, and I know that because we were looking for other fate bestiaries and there aren't any. And so if you were looking for a sort of a, a worked example, that, that might be a good thing if you're a fate developer. Um, to some extent obviously fate is as simple or as complex as you want to make it. I, I joked at one point in the process that we could have just written uh, world has been smashed by giant snake plus three. <laughs> and, and, that's the, and that's the adaptation. Go nuts. Uh, we, we went into more detail than that. Um, uh, Lenny did a really good job, not only of sort of rejiggering the character generation to be a Fate-style character generation, but also providing a tie-in for your Spirit of the Century characters. So the uh, the, the, the the Century Club, uh, Sally Slick and Jet Black and those guys—it's what happened to them when the world ended, sort of in the last chapter. So if you've been running a Spirit of the Century game, this is how to end that game with a Nazi apocalypse and uh, move on into Day After Ragnarok. So. I think it's successful both as a Day After Ragnarok book and I think it's really successful as a Fate Core book. If you are a big Fate head, there's going to be a lot of stuff in it that I think you're going to really like. And if you are interested in Day After Ragnarok but for whatever reason didn't want it in Savage Worlds or Hero, this may be a really good jumping on point. So uh, hopefully it will serve all the audiences that we intend it to. Next question. Frequent commenter Michael Kuehl.
0: So the question is, uh, where are my thoughts on Feng Shui 2? And where I am in the process is, having just reviewed the playtest feedback from 40 groups who played the current game as it is, as if it was a new game, and gave us feedback. And a lot of that is the sort of crunchy style feedback that you want, which is, this archetype is underpowered, this archetype feels too powerful, uh, reloading doesn't feel like something we care about anymore, that sort of stuff. But also broadly, Feng Shui is a kind of a traditional mid-90s game with a lot of advice that made it seem more radical than its actual uh, components as the design really indicates. So when you go back and look at it now, there are layers of complexity that I want to strip away. So for example, there are four attributes in Feng Shui, each of which has uh, three to four sub-attributes, and... Uh, There are other complicating factors. There are are derived stats, so you uh, add your skill level to one of the attributes to come up with an action value, and I'm going to try and pull as much of that as possible out so that you just have action values. Here's the number that you want to roll against Uh, and eliminate derived stats, cut out the number of stats, uh, cut out the substats, and also just make it easier to plug and play so that at the time when we designed uh, Feng Shui... Uh, It was controversial even to have a template system at all, let alone the one that is in uh, in there that uh, then uh, requires you to do a bunch of additional arithmetic and optimization and messing around. And that was... uh, We sort of had to persuade people that it was okay to have that level of decision made for you ahead of time. Well, now our playtesters are saying, can't this be kind of like Dungeon World where we just have a character we can play? And it's like, yes, you can! Uh, We're going to totally enable that so that the uh, archetypes will now be playable characters. You play your first session. and a first session, if there's something you want to swap out, uh, there are, we'd show you how to do that. And then as you progress, there'll be sort of more of a guided improvement system where you pick up things. Uh, and uh, so those are the sort of the big global things that I'll be changing, is to make Feng Shui as simple a game as you remember having played, rather than the uh, more complicated game presented as if it is a simple game that it actually is. Also,
1: there's going to be a lot more moving furniture around.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Next question. So the question is, is there a natural crossover between Pacific Rim, day after Ragnarok, and Feng
1: Shui? Um, I think that uh, the question of to what extent Gundams and martial arts are a crossover is fraught, right? Because uh, the Gundams are a Japanese tradition with all of the sort of um, uh, individual uh, cult activity that goes on with that. Uh, sort of a different cultural expression, and martial arts heroes are uh somewhat more social right that, that, that even if you 're a lone martial artist you 're part of a tradition either as a rebel or as an ex, as an exemplar and normally you 're upholding some sort of tradition as a martial artist and so the The question is to what extent are those two going to be compatible is there going to be um, is, is there some sort of sense in which you see Gundams and uh feng Shui as as matching up? At all? I guess this requires me to
0: describe the big continuity change that will be in Feng Shui. Ooh, um, it's as though you've planted someone in
3: the
1: audience. Right? Yeah. Uh, the,
0: the jammers have won. The architects are gone. And the future is no longer an Orwellian uh, nightmare with magic and demons underneath that you can never hang around in, that you can just do quick raids in and out of. It's uh, that much more uh, established movie land for action and violence, uh, a post-apocalyptic wasteland.
1: Hurrah! Thanks, Jammers! Yes.
0: (laughs) And now there's been a split in the Jammers even, and uh, Battlechimp Potemkin is still the same hero and uh, uh, riser up against the man that he always was, but Furious George is in charge now, and uh, he wants to establish a Simian army, and uh, he wants uh, his ape people to uh, rule the future. I don't know what cinematic trope that relates to. And... I'm uh, Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, th- there might be some movie franchise where yeah. Ape's Rule, I don't know what that could be. Yeah, um, well, the, you know, probably right. a good idea. Yeah. Um, and uh, this will also allow us to reference superheroes, for example, because uh, superheroes are the big action movie genre that in the mid-90s, there were no good superhero movies, really. Uh, and now there are. And so there will be... Uh, genetic mutants from the uh, disastrous uh, post-apocalyptic future. And somewhere in a corner, there's got to be a nod to uh, giant robots, but they'll be like primitive jammer tech post-apocalyptic giant robots. And they've got to be something that they're fighting. Now, those may sort of be kind of in the background because the battles that they take part in are not at the same scale as uh, individuals in an action movie. Uh, but there's going to be, you know, a nod and, and a wink to that.
1: And how does Dra- Day After Ragnarok fit a setting in which there is a dimensional vortex that is open in the middle of the Pacific and monsters come out? Well, that's just that Day After Ragnarok. So um, yeah, that's the easy half. Uh, Day After Ragnarok to Pacific Rim. It's uh, the Feng Shui. I think. Uh, is there a World War II nexus in Feng Shui or not?
0: Well, if I'm going to have to keep revealing continuity elements, we're going to be adding. Uh, there's, uh, the change in junctures has uh, destabilized the uh, chi flow throughout the different time periods, and it's now introduced pop-up junctures, Woo-hoo! which appear briefly for a period of time and long enough for you to go in and comment on music videos and, and fight on those, uh, fight with those tropes. And so uh, you will be able to briefly go back and have your uh, fight with the uh, pulp Nazis.
1: That, right, uh, Feng Shui and, and of course um, uh, the the uh, uh, vile Black Ocean Society, that is the secret uh, esoteric society behind uh, the the Japanese Empire. Right.
0: So, right. Uh, and and the key, of course, is to make sure that the continuity of Feng Shui, which holds that the transformed animals have controlled history since the 1850s, we have to explain that you know the real life atrocities of World War II are not the result of this cartoon pop trope, but are still the blame right. remains on humanity
1: a, as yes, we find it. They are, they're an epiphenomenon. Uh,
0: another question. So, uh, Rob, what current uh, setting or product are you envious of having uh, that you wish you had written?
3: Apocalypse World, probably. Because um, of the indie games that I've played, it's really tight. It's got a, it has a story in mind, and the, the moves and pieces of it, the way they link up, the way the characters are expressed, it's really tight. And so when I play it, I'm, I'm just sort of like, oh, this is good. So, yeah. Now, I'm not quite so sure I would have had the same, I, I wouldn't have had the same feel to it, but when I play it, that's a feeling I have.
0: Um, I wish i designed Angry Birds, but I <laughs> yeah, right. no more have the capacity to do so than I do to create a new
1: life form. And uh, to answer the question in the terms of what I could have made but didn't, and uh, as Robin did, and to say I wish I was Vincent Baker, as Rob did, uh, I wish I had done Dogs in the Vineyard. The uh, notion of doing a proper Western game, which had never been done until Vincent did it and made it look easy, I feel like I kind of dropped the ball on that, that maybe huh. if I had been as good as Vincent, I could have done a good Western and had done Dogs in the Vineyard. But as it is, all power to Vincent and Dogs in the Vineyard is a transcendent, amazing version of the, the core Western story and the core Western myth. And Vincent did such a great job. I'm nothing but envious whenever I play it or read it. it, it just, And it looks great, which is just nice.
0: Um, I also wish I'd directed most of the films of David Cronenberg. Yes. (laughs) Uh, uh, Next question. Okay, so the question is basically, if we were under no constraints in our weirdness, uh, what we would do? And uh, I've never been constrained. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My my very first gaming product was a uh, setting of uh, tribal people in a desolate land where it was dangerous to get too close to the gods, uh, one of whom... Uh, was a dangerous uh, bear who, if you got too close, would devour you, thinking you were honey uh, his uh, piglet friend, uh, his uh, uh, weird, sad mule uh, were all of the different gods. Uh, this is a book called uh, gerp's uh, Fantasy Two Adventures in the madline so I it not only so I not only did that, but I did it as a gerps book uh, so um,
1: I question your premise, sir. <laughs> If I could force anything down someone's throat that they would never, in a million years, accept, it would be kind of fun to do a hero quest game set in the Hellenistic era, with the cults actually mapping to the actual cults of the Hellenistic era. So that if you worshipped Poseidon, Hippios, god of horses, that would give you specific ac- uh, access to, to, to spells and magics, as opposed to Poseidon, the god of earthquakes, or Poseidon, the god of oceans. Uh, There would be all manner of, uh, you know, uh, bleed over from India with the uh, uh, Indo-Greeks. There'd be the rise of Rome. So you'd have the forgotten gods of the 15 tutelary spirits of Rome. By the time of Augustus, they'd forgotten the names of two of them and had only remembered the names and not the duties or roles of three more. So a third of their gods are unknown uh, I think that you could really do something with the Hellenistic era. It's tremendously exciting, it's exotic, it's urban, it's uh, cosmopolitan, it's everything the modern era is, plus pagan and stabby. And so I think that that would be great fun, but no one in their right mind is going to do a close, uh, a, a close approach to the Hellenistic era. I have a more accessible Hellenistic uh, game that if I ever get any free time I'll do, which is a uh, Seven Wonders of the World that I call um, Big Eye's Antique Smile. <laughs> And uh, Rob,
0: what is the uh, thing that is too bat guano nuts uh, <laughs> for anyone to actually publish that you dream of publishing?
3: So we're talking specifically setting, because I think that my crazy ass dreams are nearly all mechanical in a weird way. It's like I, I, I think that compared to your uh, baroque flavors of, I'm going to write about French surrealism as it intersects with you know, it's like no, I, I'm not even going there. I tend to like have much more issues like wanting to use mechanics that are n-dimensional chess, you know, that I and a couple other people might enjoy and the rest of the people should run away from. So I have to say that in a weird sense, that like in terms of, you know, so the, the settings that I have most wanted to be involved with, I think I either have been or will be, and when it comes to a, a crazy-ass one, oh, no, there is one. Okay, sure. Right. In the same way that you sometimes get, uh, fall in love with like doing the thing you, uh, you know the most about, um, I have frequently approached the setting of, uh, essentially call it Native American martial arts as practiced through tribal groups and patterns spread out across Turtle Island um, that involves fighting each other's, uh, everybody's, everybody's monsters get loose and you have to like develop new techniques to fight them across. And the problem is, is that I'm a little bit too much of an anthropologist, and I know a little bit too much about it, and I'm gonna have to start drinking in order to forget some things, and so then I'll be able to approach that a little That's
1: bit. That's the secret, kids. <laughs> I don't do that,
3: so I have a little problem there.
1: Setting in a bottle.
3: So, I'll tell you what, you see me do that project, it probably means I started drinking more whiskey. <laughs> I'll
0: be fine uh so we uh we've been flagged for time so uh who has a really a, sh- a question that is not only short but can be answered quickly by the panel uh so what is our favorite game session ever and uh, why uh, there's a lot of preamble that i'll skip but the one in which we all realize spontaneously that one of the characters in the futuristic uh, war cabinet was actually a lizard alien who uh uh, (laughs) killed the president and escaped in a rocket ship and uh none of us knew that was happening at the beginning that's a player character and at the end that all happened and it all felt right
3: um jonathan tweets Elisambra game which was his game for third edition uh that became 3.5 in midstream um when One of the characters had attempted to become the king of the land and because he did the ritual in the wrong place, actually became the king of hell, ended up commanding all devils everywhere in the world. And This seemed like a really good thing to fight the forces of evil until we returned home from a campaign and discovered that the wording and the contract had not been said out loud properly and the rows, an entire row of 200 pit fiends, was standing, kneeling in obeisance as they had been commanded, but in their hands they held the sometimes still-beating hearts of everyone we had ever loved and had ever protected.
1: We'd kind of blown it. it and the nice. reason he liked it is because you rolled a really sweet natural 20 about two-thirds of the way through.
3: No, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was one of those times where you learned that power does corrupt.
1: My favorite would probably be a whole list of Call of Cthulhu moments. I ran Call of Cthulhu pretty much nonstop from 1981 to 1988. And I could go on and on, it could be the time that I ran a a covert infiltration into Innsmouth on my friend's boat, which was anchored in Grand Lake, and I had planned that adventure around what I knew would be the ambient sounds. Oh,
3: so you ran it on the boat? Yeah,
1: we were on the boat, and so I knew that this was a good time for Deep Ones to show up. It it (laughs) might be any of the um, uh, really great um, uh, going mad scenes when you get proper PvP. Uh, The FBI agent had a morbid fear of doctors. Uh, One of the characters was a doctor of parapsychology, Uh, that led to great, uh, you know, hunting each other back and forth through the haunted landscape. But I think my favorite is the climax of Brotherhood of the Beast uh, when they were gathering all i mean literally it's like that that one bit in buffy where they're gathering everything in the, out of the trophy closet mm-hmm. to try and shut down Neolothotep. they've got all of their magic items all of their tomes everything is open all their sanity has been boiled down to learn the ritual to get all the all the secret power built up to stop uh, Neolothotep who is going to incarnate into the great sphinx and r- rule the world from it and all of the uh, the the systems that they had done to add up Gave them unbeknownst to them exactly a 50-50 shot at saving the world, and they roll the dice and they roll a forty-nine, and it's like, oh my god! Uh-huh. <laughs> and so there was a really great narration about you know them just at the very last moment uh, before the world explodes. Uh-huh. I thought I'd have to get, it sinks back into the Sphinx, <laughs> and then I said, hey, guess what your chance of success was, <laughs> and uh, that was a pretty great moment uh, because I sort of. Saw that coming, and in the best way, as the GM, I was really surprised and really enjoying the moment in a way that I knew the players could not at that moment, yeah. but would once they knew. And so I could sort of see what was coming forward. In, a, in, a, in I thought, I, it, As a GM, a lot of times your reward is just other people having fun. And so it's nice, without stepping on everyone's fun, to actually have a moment that only the GM knows. And so I, I really like that. Uh, so this is going to be the final episode that we release before
0: Christmas, so uh, Dragon Meat attendees uh, wish our listeners a happy holidays. happy holidays. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
1: Slab Town Games. York Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrain Press. Music as always is by James Semple.
0: Protect yourself from mild disappointment by clicking the donate button at
1: KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Downcast, Or your podcast app of choice. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. He's at Robin D. Laws. And Rob Hainso
0: is at Rob Hainso.
1: See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff.